0: This audio is brought to you by Muslim Central. Please consider donating to help cover our running costs and future projects by visiting www.muslimcentral.com forward slash donate. You're listening to the Qalam Institute podcast series. Sirah, Life of the Prophet Wasallam. Qalam is pleased to announce that admissions for the next Qalam seminary intake are now open. For more information, please visit qalaminstitute.org. Bismillahi alhamdulillah wa salatu ala Rasulillahi wa ala alihi wa ajma'een. continuing with our series on the life of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa the prophetic biography. In the previous session, which was um, a few weeks ago, apologize for the um, irregularity, inshallah we'll be continuing now, hopefully consistently, um, we talked about the beginning of the third year of Hijrah. The beginning of the third year of Hijrah was basically um, to some degree, to, to quite an extent actually, uh, a reaction to the battle of Badr. That the couple of incidents that the Prophet ﷺ and the Muslims that they dealt with was first and foremost kind of a small raid by Abu Sufyan and a few of the Quraysh. A few of the Meccans in which they burned down an orchard and even killed an Ansari and another ally of the Ansar. Uh, there were a couple of incidents then where the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi the Muslims, they pursued them and went after them. And then, of course, there was the issue of Banu Qaynuqa'a, the Jewish tribe that lived within the, within the, uh, boundaries of the city of Medina. Um, and that was all a reaction to the Battle of Badr because some of the Jewish tribes that lived in and around Medina became very agitated after the Battle of Badr because they naturally felt very intimidated. And I talked about this at length before, but I'll just reiterate for a second here. The Battle of Badr was very, very interesting in, in the sense that up till that point, the Muslims were looked at, the Muslim community, even the establishment of Medina was looked at as just… Um, you know, a very small, insignificant uh, occurrence. It was looked at as as if there was just this very small, uh, you know, eccentric group of people, um, and it didn't seem to have any type of significance or relevance to the greater Arabian. Peninsula, um, and it was deemed to be an irrelevant uh, occurrence. But once the Battle of Badr actually occurred and happened, Mecca was shown to be vulnerable. Quraysh, uh, it was proven now that Quraysh could be defeated. And not only could Quraysh be defeated, but Quraysh should be defeated by this very small, poor, helpless band of individuals, of people. And so that very greatly started to, that basically put all of Arabia on alert. Uh, in regards to the Muslims. And so a lot of these events were happening as a consequence, as a reaction to that. Now as I mentioned, of course the Battle of Badr, once the Battle of Badr happened, then you have to understand that Medina and Mecca are basically at war at this point. Um, The Muslims and the Quraysh basically are at war with one another. On top of that, then you have Abu Sufyan raiding Medina, burning down an orchard and killing a man, killing two people actually, a Muslim and the ally of uh, one of, uh, a member of a tribe that is allied to the Muslims. So they are basically announcing that we are very interested in continuing uh, this war, this battle. So at that particular time, there's the incident that is referred to as to Zayd ibn Haritha. to Zayd ibn Haritha, this was the campaign or the expedition of Zayd ibn Haritha, the adopted son of the Prophet sallallahu It's also known as Suhbatu Abi Sufyan or Suhbatu Safwan, Safwan bin Umayyah. What occurred at this particular time was that the Quraysh themselves, Abu Sufyan himself had escalated the issue by raiding Medina. So now the Quraysh became very concerned. They needed to travel for the sake of their business. Um, at the beginning of the year, they needed to travel to Asham in order to conduct their business. But their route to Asham passed by very close to Al-Madinatul Munawara, the, pro- the city of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi So because of this, you know, there was a lot of paranoia amongst the higher-ups in Mecca, amongst the leadership of the Quraysh. That what are we going to do? How are we going to go about our business now that you know the issue is the way that it is? Right? We're both trying to get each other. So how are we going to conduct business? How are we going to travel safely? So they decided at that particular time, Safan ibn Umayyah, Safan ibn Umayyah, who was one of the surviving leaders of the Quraysh, um, and had kind of inherited a seat at the table after all the, so many of the leaders of Quraysh had died in the Battle of Badr, he was going to be leading a, again, kind of an investment campaign to grow the war fund of the Quraysh and the Meccans. And so he was carrying a lot of silver, a lot of valuables, a lot of merchandise with them. Um, and many investments were made from some of the leadership of the Quraysh. And they were going to be traveling. What ended up happening is that the one of the individuals from Mecca who was aware of the fact that this um, caravan was going to be going to do business, um, he... Nu'aym bin Mas'ud, um, who was from the Makkans, who was from the Quraysh, he ended up visiting Medina. He had some friendships, he had some old friends um, that he had in Medina. He was also very close to some of the people of Banu Nadir. So he ended up visiting just on a personal visit. And he was granted protection and he was able to come and visit. While he was visiting, at that time, you know, basically they were uh, they were hanging out, the alcohol was free flowing, they started drinking. Eventually, he got very drunk and he ended up spilling the beans. He ended up talking about the fact that, you know, we're putting together all this money and we're going to be traveling to Asham to do some business. But the problem is we can't go by here anymore because of Muhammad and his people, sallallahu alayhi wa So, what we're planning to do is to take an alternate route. We've been able to figure out an alternate route and we're going to be taking that route. And he basically spilled the beans one of the people who was there at that time came and informed the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam um ibn nu'man Radiallahu uh, and this is of course before the prohibition of wine and alcohol, but Salit ibn Nu'aman, who was present in that gathering, he came and he informed the Prophet that this is this is what's going on with the Quraysh and this is what they're planning on doing. The Prophet immediately sent Zayd ibn Haritha with as many people that they could get together uh, on a short notice and sent them out to intercept this caravan. Because if you remember, after they had raided Medina, burned down an orchard and killed two people, they had pursued them but were not able to get a hold of them. So this was this was retaliation, justified retaliation in that regard. So Zaid ibn Haritha anhu, and a group of Muslims they go, they are able to intercept the caravan, a, they acquire a lot of the silver and the money and the investments that they're carrying with them and bring it back to Medina. And some of the narrations mention as well, that one person was taken prisoner, his name was Furat ibn Hayyan. He was taken prisoner. They arrived back in Medina, and by and far, this was probably the largest acquisition the Muslims had made up to this particular point. And it was very... Well, needed, very much needed reprieve from a lot of the very difficult circumstances that were present in Medina. Right? Because if you think about it, the community of the, the, community of the Ansar, right? The Medinan Arabs, right? Pre Islamically, they were farmers. They were date farmers. Very simple, humble people. They didn't have much to their name. Then you have an entire community of the Muhajirun who has left Makkah and now arrived in Medina. Penniless, homeless. Alright, so now they are, the Ansar have taken them in. Who already were hand to mouth to begin with. Then you have the majority of Muslims, or a lot, some of them at least, the majority of them would actually come later. But many of the Muslims who were in Habasha and Abyssinia, have also now come and arrived in Medina as well. So you have another whole group of outsiders. Again, who are arriving basically penniless, homeless um, and they arrive there, and they're taken in as well. So the and then you have something like the Battle of Badr happening, where everybody exhausts every you know uh, ounce that they have. So the community in Medina is really struggling financially, and so this was the largest acquisition. It was around a hundred thousand dirhams. A hundred thousand dirhams, a hundred thousand gold coins, because as Surah Al-Anfal had informed us at the, that was revealed at the time of Badr, Wa Lillahi All right, that a fifth of what is acquired basically is set aside for the state of the uh, for the affairs of the state right and it is at the discretion of allah and his messenger sallallahu alaihi wasallam it is used for the baitul mal it is used for the running of the affairs of the state it is used for supporting the family and the families and the households of the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam because they cannot accept zakat right so it's used for all these necessary functions uh in the community so that's the khums one uh fifth 20% that is set aside for the affairs of the state the, the just the khums is mentioned within the narrations of uh, Al-Waqidi, that just the khums was 20,000 darahim. Which basically means that it was 100,000 darahim, 100,000 silver coins uh, that were acquired at this particular time. So this was by and far the largest acquisition the Muslims uh, had been blessed with up to this particular point. The one prisoner who was taken, Furat ibn Hayyan, that again was not some indiscretion on the part of the Muslims. What proves that? He accepted Islam. Alright, so he was a, he was taken prisoner, he was taken to Medina, he was released by the Muslims in Medina, you're free to go back to Mecca and basically he said, No, I'd rather stay. Ashadwallah, Shadwin Muhammad Rasulullah. Alright, so he ended up becoming Muslim. And so all of this basically transpired in the month of Jumadil al-Ula of the third year of the Prophet ﷺ's residence in Medina. So about 28 months after the Prophet ﷺ had arrived in the city of Medina. So a little over two years now. Um, And so in about two, two and a half years, this is where the state of affairs has reached as far as the Muslims are concerned. There, Ibn Jadir at-Tabari, he also mentions uh, at this particular point that in uh, Rabi'ul Awal of this. Uh, year, the third year of Hijrah in the month of Rabiul awwal This is also the month in which the Prophet sallallahu conducted the marriage of Uthman ibn Affan radiallahu ta'ala anhu with his third eldest daughter Umm Kudthum binti Rasulillahi sallallahu alayhi wasallam. If you remember, if you recall, Uthman ibn Affan was sent back by the Prophet ﷺ, was told to stay in Medina during the battle of Badr to look after the daughter of the Prophet ﷺ, the wife of Uthman who was very ill at that time, Ruqayyah radhiyallahu anha. When the news of the victory of Badr arrived back in Medina at the hands of Zayd ibn Haritha, they were he saw the Muslims, Uthman ibn Affan, his own son Usama ibn Zayd, and a group of Muslims returning back from Baqiyah after having buried the daughter of the Prophet ﷺ, performed forming her janazah, the daughter of the Prophet passed away while they were blessed with victory at Badr. So it was very bittersweet for the Prophet in that regard. It was a great victory, but he came back to basically mourn his daughter. So after some time had transpired and passed, the Prophet ﷺ, at that point in time, married his third daughter, Umm Kulthum to Uthman ibn Affan anhu, Thereby granting Uthman anhu the title and the honor of being ذُّ nurayn the one who married the two daughters of the Prophet ﷺ. Of course, one after another, subsequently, not at the same time, as that's not permissible. But he basically married the... younger sister after the elder sister had passed away. Uh, He married her and he's the only one. In fact, uh, Ibn Kathir ta'ala mentions that there is, I mean, of course there's, one could argue that we don't have a lot of information in that regard, but then what could counter-argue, well exactly, maybe because there is no other precedent of this. But basically Ibn Kathir ta'ala says, I even looked within the Isra'iliyat, and I could not find anywhere, any evidence, even in the Isra'iliyat, that anyone had ever married two daughters of any prophet or messenger, uh, alaykum salam And so that is an honor and a distinction of Uthman bin Afan radiallahu ta'ala anhu. He is the only one from humanity, from the history of mankind who has been able to marry two, um, you know, uh, daughters of any prophet or any messenger, or even vice versa. There's never been a woman who is married to two sons of a prophet uh, or a messenger, one after another. So he's the only one who has had that type of a relationship with any prophet or any messenger throughout human history. Ibn Kathir Rahmullah ta'ala makes this particular point. And of course, um, the Prophet wasallam, would comment, um, and Umm Kuthum actually, radiallahu ta'ala anha, would also pass away during the lifetime of the Prophet and the Prophet would actually comment um, That if I had another daughter When Umu passes away The Prophet said If I had another daughter to marry Because of course Fatima radhiyallahu anha Was married to Ali bin Abi Talib In the second year as we talked about But he commented at that time If I had another daughter to marry I would have married her to Uthman bin Affan radhiyallahu anhu Because that is the caliber And the quality of an individual that he is So that is the um, next incident that basically occurred during the third year of Hijrah. Before we... We're very close to discussing the battle of Uhud. Before we discuss the battle of Uhud, which we'll probably delve into uh, in the next session, or at least start discussing in the next session, there's one major incident in the third year that can very well be described as the precursor to the battle of Uhud. So how and why the battle of Uhud occurred um, is tied to another incident of, during the third year. So this involves discussing a particular individual who lived right outside of al madinatul munawwara His name was Ka'ab ibn al-Ashraf. Ka'ab ibn al-Ashraf. His father, he, he was a very interesting individual. His father was Arab, his father was from Banu Tayy. Um, and specifically from the family of Banu Nabhan. So his father was Arab. And of course, Arabs, they established lineage as Islam affirms as well. Arabs, they established, even pre-Islamically, they established lineage through the father. So in the eyes of the Arabs, he was Arab. From his mother, however, belonged to Banu Nadir, which was a Jewish tribe. And as the Jews, as the Jews, they established lineage through the mother, he was accepted as one of Banu Nadir, he was accepted as a Jew amongst the Jews. And so he was a very interesting individual who was able to maintain a very high rank and status in both families, uh, in both communities, excuse me. And his father was not just an individual of an Arab tribe, he was from the leadership of the Arab tribe. His grandfather had actually been one of the chiefs of Banu Nadir. And so because of this, this was somebody who held very high rank in both communities. On top of that, he himself was known to be, um, just in terms of physical features, obviously, in terms of gaining prominence, he was known to be very tall, he was very handsome. Um, in terms of his uh, abilities, he was literate, he knew how to read and write, um, not, and that was, while that was common amongst the Jews, that was very rare amongst the Arabs. So he was educated, he was actually a very talented poet, um, and his, he was very well known for his poetry. He would be hired for his poetry. Um, so, and he had inherited a lot of lands right outside of Medina. Some of the lands of Banu Nadir, he had inherited them from his grandfather. So he owned lots of very valuable land. He was a poet, which basically made him a celebrity at that time. Um, he was very politically connected in two different communities. The you know, some of the Arab tribes and in the Jewish community. So this was somebody who enjoyed a lot of basically status and luxury. Um, And he was a very prominent individual. So he was used to basically getting his way. And he was used to being able to make anything happen that he wanted to make happen. After the Battle of Badr, again, he was very agitated by the Battle of Badr as well. He was agitated, of course, with the arrival of the Prophet ﷺ in Medina, the you know, spread of Islam, and basically Medina basic, uh, becoming a Muslim city. He was agitated by all of that. But once the Battle of Badr occurred, now he was very bothered by all of this. So, many different historians, Imam Bukhari in his Sahih mentions this, uh, ibn Ishaq, he mentions this, Ibn Kathir mentions this, um, and so and also Imam al-Bayhaqi in Dala'il al-Nubu'ah also mentions this, that Ka'b ibn al-Ashraf, basically after the battle of Badr, he got in touch with the Quraysh. He got in touch with the Quraysh, and he actually paid a visit to Makkah, and he being having some type of celebrity status you know he was able to gather people together he said i'd like to speak to the leadership here in mecca the leadership of the quraysh So they said sure they kind of gave him an audience they got everybody together for him and he addressed everyone by saying wallahi la in kana muhammadun asabaha ulai alqaum labatnul ardi khairun min zahriha that he said if muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam is able to defeat you people then we're better off being in the ground than being on top of the ground Like we should all just die, fighting him. If Muhammad is sallallahu alaihi wasallam is going to be able to, you know, defeat even the Quraysh. And it said that he conducted a campaign in Makkah. He went and resided there in Makkah. There are even some narrations that say that he was paid by some of the Quraysh to even uh, conduct this campaign. But he conducted a campaign where not only he incited the Meccans against the Muslims, but he also conducted a fundraising campaign to encourage everyone to contribute to the war fund to be able to build an army up to attack the Muslims. And so all of this is mentioned in the narration um fa anzalatu wa akramatu he basically went to artika bint abul ayis um fa anzalatu wa akramatu wa ja'ala yuharridu ala qital rasul allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam wa yanshid al ash'ar wa man Kutila min al mushrikeen yawm badr fa dhakara ibn ishaq qasidatahu allati awwaluha tahanat rahaba badr limahlik ahlihi wa limithl badr tastahillu wa tadma'u he says that you know my heart still burns because of the people who died at Badr. My heart still aches for the people who fell at Badr, from amongst the Quraysh. And he says that, what happened at Badr is such that we should never stop crying over it. We should continue to mourn, we should continue to be angered, we should continue to be pained by what happened at Badr. So, Hassan bin Thabit radiyallahu taala anhu also mentions that ثُمَّ إِلَى الْمَدِينَةِ فَجَعَلَ بِنِسَاءِ الْمُسْلِمِينَ ويهجر النَّبِي صلى الله عليه وسلم And so after he got everyone riled up in uh, Mecca and basically got a war campaign started which resulted in which resulted in Uhud. So he is the instigator of Uhud. He then came back to Medina. He told the Meccans, he said, now let me go back to Medina and do what I do over there. So he comes back to Medina, and he starts inciting and instigating fights within Medina. Um, by you know inciting some of the old rivalries in Medina between Aus and Khazraj. One of the other things that he was very notorious for was harassing Muslim women in Medina. He would kind of sneak out at night, or you know, go out and cover up and harass Muslim women to just create some unrest in Medina, create some paranoia in Medina that the streets of Medina are not safe. He started you know uh, slandering the Prophet sallallahu slandering many of the Sahaba radiallahu taala anhum and started creating all these problems. So the Prophet ﷺ, when he came to know about that Ka'b ibn al-Ashraf single-handedly is basically trying to incite war, the Prophet ﷺ, you know gathered some of the individuals of the tribe of Aus. Um, and he basically said, he asked them that, this is the problem that we have right now. Qab ibn al-Ashraf is trying to um rile up Mecca to attack Medina on top of that he's creating all this you know unrest in the streets of Medina we need to handle this problem so one of the ansar Muhammad bin Maslama radiyallahu ta'ala anhu who's from the Aws he said ya rasulullah let me go ahead and handle this but he said if i have to if i have to you know, um, employ certain tactics in order to be able to handle this situation. Do I have, is it alright? If I do what I have to do? And the Prophet ﷺ said, عَلَيْكَ jihad You know, you do what you have to do. I'm not gonna get in your way, I'm not gonna tell you what to do. So at this particular time, Muhammad bin Maslama, he says, okay. So he says, let me recruit a couple of people. So one of the Ansar... His name was Abu Naila. Um, his name is actually Silkan radiallahu ta'ala anhu. So he recruits Abu Naila, whose name is Silkan. And the reason why he recruits him is actually very interesting, it's fascinating. This sahabi Abu Naila radiallahu anhu was nursed by the same woman that Ka'ab ibn al-Ashraf had been nursed by. So because of that, he was his foster brother, his rada'i brother, his milk brother. So he was his foster brother. So he knew that if somebody can get me through the door, it's Abu Nailah. That's the closest ally that I, that's the closest I can get to Ka'b ibn al-Ashraf. One of the other things I wanted to mention, Ka'b ibn al-Ashraf, that huge property he had inherited, he had basically built a fortress on it. It's This man's notions of grandeur were like out of control. He had built a fortress for himself. He lived inside of a fortress. And so he said that the, the closest I can get to him is Abu Nailah. So he got Abu Nailah and a couple of other buddies from Aus together, a couple of other of the Ansar. And they head on over to visit Ka'bun al-Ashraf. So this is where it gets um, very interesting, and you kind of learn a little bit more about Ka'bun al-Ashraf. So they go to visit him, and Muhammad bin Abu Naila makes the introductions. He says, you know, I wanted to come visit you. He's like, absolutely brother, it's nice to have you, etc, etc. And he says, I wanted to introduce you to my friend, um, who wanted to meet you. He asked me to introduce you to him. Um, so he says, sure. He says, this is Muhammad bin Maslama. So Muhammad bin Maslama says that, look, we have a little bit of a problem. We have a problem in rajul qad sadaqatan wa innahu qad annana wa inni qad astas lifuka So he says that look this man this man he's basically speaking about the prophet Muhammad bin Masama. these are the tactics he says this man who has come to our community and we followed him in one other narration he says inna qad we followed him we want to stick it out with him. You know, we agree with him, we believe in what he says. But at the same time, we're dealing with a lot of difficulty. We have poverty at our doorstep. We're dealing with a lot of financial hardship. You know, the Arabs have picked up weapons against us. We're at war with Quraysh and Makkah now. And so we're dealing with hard times. So what I'm trying to tell you is that I'm with him. But I do have a difficult situation and I'm not sure how things are gonna pan out, how things are gonna play out. But in the meantime, I was wondering if you could assist me and help me. And so basically I wanna borrow some money from you. But I'll be indebted to you, I'll pay you back, I'm good for it. You know, and I, you know, this is definitely gonna earn you a lot of influence in my community, I've, I'll vouch for you. You know, your influence will grow, your network will grow, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. So he has this whole conversation with him. So he says, sure, okay, I don't mind lending you some money, but irhanuni, You have to put down something as a security deposit. You have to play, rahan is a security deposit, but with the Arabs specifically, the security deposit would be some type of valuable. And a lot of times it would be a sword, or an armor, or a shield. The Prophet ﷺ himself, the day he passed away, the Prophet ﷺ still had an armor that was kept by somebody as a security deposit. For a loan, the Prophet ﷺ had taken. But the armor the Prophet ﷺ had put was worth more than the loan that he had taken. That was the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ. What he would put down as a security deposit was always worth more than the money he was borrowing. Right? So nevertheless he says, put down some type of security deposit. He says, okay, What would you like? So he says, irhanuni nisaakum So he says, why don't you bring your wife and drop her off at my place. I'll hold your wife as a security deposit. Right? Very disrespectful, obviously. Um, and so he says, كَيْفَ nisa نِسَأَنَا And so Muhammad bin Maslama probably was thinking to himself, like I should just take care of this right now. But he said, you know, I, I don't have my weapons on me, etc. So I gotta play cool here, I gotta handle this situation. I'm dealing with this wretched human being, but let me keep my cool, right? Keep my head about me and handle my business here. So he says, كَيْفَ now, How can I come and leave my wife here with you? Anta أَجْمَلُ الْعَرَبُ You know, you, you're such a baller, mashallah. Right? And so, how am I gonna leave my wife here with you? She's not gonna wanna come back home with me then. Right? So, he says, alright, alright, I get it. You know, I am a baller, what am I supposed to do? <laughs> right? I can't help it. Right? So then he says, "Farhanuni, أَبْنَاءَكُمْ So why don't you leave your children here with me as a security deposit? I'll put them in a corner somewhere. Like they're domesticated animals, right? Like they're pets. Right? I'll tie them up in a corner somewhere. Leave your kids here with me. He said, says, Come on, brother. How am I going to leave my kids here with you as a security deposit? Right? yasubbu ahaduhum. Right? Fayyasubu ahaduhum. People will curse them. People be like, hey, you know you, you know you? Your father left you with somebody as a security deposit. That's what you're worth. That's how much your daddy loved you, right? So he's like, I can't do that to my kids. Come on, think about it. A little bit of is that right? So he says, okay, okay, I got you. I get it. So he says that, you know, what 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 else what else can you leave as a security deposit? You people don't have anything else. Poor farmers. Look at you, ragged, tattered. What else are you gonna leave? So now Muhammad bin Masama says, "I was hoping the conversation would get here, because this was my plan." He said, "Look, you know us Aus and Khazraj. We're fighters. We're farmers. We don't own anything, but we are fighters. We got swords and shields and armors. That's basically what we have, right? We plant dates and we polish our swords. That's what we do, right?" So he says, "How about we leave our weapons with you, silahana, right? With you as rahan." So he says, okay, might as well, that works for me. So he says, great, fantastic. So we'll come by tomorrow day after with our weapons and we'll leave it with you as a security deposit. Now this gives him an excuse to bring weapons through the door. Because he lived in a fortress. So the way that he used to operate was that he had guards at the door, at the gates, and you would have to leave your weapons with the guard. But how do you get weapons in? Well, this is how you get weapons in. We're bringing it as a security deposit. Right, so you can inspect them and you can check them and see them. So he says, "Great, fantastic." They come by the following night, and um, Abu Naila, basically, you know, they come and says, "Who's there?" Abu Na'ilah is there. So, Kaab bin Al ashraf is informed Abu Na'ilah is here to see you, right, your brother. So he starts getting out of bed, and what's very fascinating is that his wife actually, um, you know, grabs him and says that, don't go. And see, this is the other thing, right? The, I, I, I'm, I'm gonna talk more about this towards the end of it. But the story of Ka'ab bin al-Ashraf is twisted by two opposite extremes. It's twisted by some of the Khariji, you know, militant extremist types who basically say, look, the second anybody says anything that you don't like, done. Take them out. Right? This was a poet, said something disrespectful about the Prophet, took him out. Incorrect. Right? And similarly, the story of Ka'ab bin al Ashraf is also twisted by the opposite extreme. Right? Islamophobes and people who, Orientalists earlier, now Islamophobes these days, and people who try to misportray or slander Islam, they basically use the same story and they actually use the same exact rhetoric. They're like, look, the second somebody said something, Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam didn't like, they would take him out. And it's incorrect because his, when he's leaving the bed, his wife actually says, because it's nighttime, she says that Ainatadha, where are you going? And he says, Uh Hada Ahi Abu Na'Ilah. Hada Ahi Waradi Abu Naila. This is my foster brother Abu Na'ilah. So she actually says to him at that time, which is fascinating, she says, Anta Rajulun Muhar Anta rajulun Muharibun you're a man who's declared war. You are a man who has declared war. Why would his wife be saying, you are a man who has declared war? Because he had declared war. He single-handedly instigated an entire battle. Right, he single-handedly was keeping a war alive. Right, so this is, this is somebody that in every sense of the word is an enemy, uh, an enemy combatant. Right, this is not somebody who just decided to write an editorial piece. It's not somebody who just, you know, came up with some poems in which he maybe said some distasteful things about the Prophet. As bad as that is, but what we need to understand over here is that no no no, he was involved in an act of war. He had declared war against Medina and against the Prophet and the Muslims. So she actually says that Anta Rajulun Muharibun wa inna لا harbi في fi الساعة. سبحان Subhanallah. She says, Muharabun. وَإِنَّ أَصْحَابِ الْحَرْبِ لَا يَنْزِلُونَ فِي هذه When you are at war, you don't go outside of your house at this hour of the night. Right? SubhanAllah, think about it. This is all in the text. This is all in the text. This is why our scholars, they place so much, our teachers, they place so much emphasis on going back to the source material. When you read Ibn Ishaq and you read Ibn Kathir and you read Al-Waqidi and you read the earliest sources of the seerah, the most authentic sources of seerah, the answers are all there. It's not a cut and paste job. That's what the internet is full of. But what we need is an actual return to the source, to the text itself. Right, so she's saying, Anta muharabun, Harbi La Yanziluna fi Ah, When you're at war, you don't go outside at this time of the night, buddy. And so... He says, no, 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 this is Abu Nailah. Abu Na'ilah. wajadani He says that if I was sleeping, he wouldn't even wake me up. Abu Nailah, you ever seen Abu Nailah? He wouldn't hurt a fly. Gentle man. Gentle, gentle soul. Right? If he found me sleeping, he wouldn't even wake me up. He'd be like, oh no, I don't want to wake him up. He would sit there and wait for me to wake up. That's Abu Nailah, what are you talking about? Let me go. So he wraps himself up. He goes outside. So they bring the weapons and they're like, here are the weapons and everything that we've brought um, for the darah um, the and the security deposits. So he says, okay, great. And um, the narration of uh, Muhammad bin Maslamah ta'ala anhu says, Kanat laylatan it, was a, it was a night with the full moon. It was very bright outside, beautiful, huge. The moon was huge, looked huge. Right? So we kind of said that, why don't we go for a little walk in in the moonlight, right? Just go walk, talk, reminisce, talk about old days, old times. So he said, sure, absolutely. So he said, we started kind of walking around outside the fortress. We had all our weapons with us and everything. And so as we're walking, of course this man, right? He was wealthy, uh, famous, celebrity, prominence, etc. So he really, you know, kind of used to spoil himself in that regard, take care of himself like that. So he had long flowing hair, And his hair smelled really, really nice. Because he used to put like, you know, uh, perfume in his hair. And so, uh, Abu Naila basically said to him, being a brother, you know, he said, man, your hair smells amazing. Right? So, what do you put in your hair? What kind of shampoo do you use? Right? So, he's like, oh, you know, I put some perfume in this and that. And he's like, oh, it's amazing. So he says, do you mind if I smell your hair? Right? Let me check it out. So he says, Yeah, sure, brother, no problem, right? Weird brothers, right? So he says, Yeah, sure, brother, no problem. So he puts his head down, and Abu Na'ilah grabs his head. And then he tells Muhammad bin Maslamah, and I, I forgot who else was with them, um, he tells him, Go for it. And they, and I want to mention this, and I'm going to give a disclaimer before I mention it. What I'm about to mention, and I will describe it from the text, but I will explain exactly what it says. Right? And so I will explain it in as plain words as I can. But I'm, the disclaimer I'm going to give you is that my intention is not, well, ayyazdu billah, God forbid, it's not even permissible for us to do so. My intention is not to make fun of or to mock the Sahaba radiallahu ta'ala anhu. But it is for a very specific reason and purpose that I'm going to. Translate it and explain it as explicitly as I'm going to. So he says that, you know, he grabs his head and he says that, uh Idribu Kill him. So he says, falam Two, three guys, they all got out their swords and they all went at the same time and their swords hit each other and Gabin ibn al-Ashraf is still standing there like, are you kidding me? Right? Like again, not to mock. But what I'm saying is like, you know, if there's like a pop fly, ball popped up in the air in the outfield, two, three different people running towards the ball to catch it, and what happens? If they're amateurs, like me, then they run into each other. And nobody catches the ball. These were not trained, skilled assassins. You see, I'm not making fun of the Sahaba, that's not even permissible. What I'm saying is that the Sahaba, this portrayal that the Orientalists, that the Islamophobes after them, that even these uh, extremists, the rhetoric that they have, the portrayal that they've made of the Sahaba and of this particular incident, as if these Muslims were these cold, hard assassins. Right? They were these mysterious, super trained, super skilled assassins that would like fall out, step out of the shadows. Right? Take you out, and then ret- retreat back into the shadows and disappear. Oh, you said something about the Prophet Done, finished. Right? That—that's That's kind of the mental image that they've tried to portray. Both extremes. The crazy extremists and the anti-Muslim camp. They both have the same portrayal of the sahaba. These assassins. These were, the sahaba were who? These ansar? Like I said, they were farmers. They were family men. They had wives, they had children, elderly parents they looked after. Then what happened when they accepted Islam? Then they became worshippers. تَرَاهُمْ سُجدًا يَبْتَغُونَ فَضْلًا مِنَ اللَّهِ من you, Every time you look at them, you see them in ruku. you see them in sujood, you see them praying. That's what the sahaba were. That's who these ansar were. Or skilled assassins. So when the opportunity came, they all got out their swords, kind of fumbling with their swords, and they're all swords clanked against each other. And Abu Na'ila is holding him like, what are you guys doing? And so then they again go at it. And one of them actually ends up stabbing another one of them. Al-Harith ibn ibn Aus, he was one of the other ones. Al-Harith ibn Aus, one of the other Muslims ends up stabbing one of the other Muslims. Friendly fire. Right? So one Muslim stabs another Muslim by accident, Mrs. Ka'ab al-Ashraf gets another Muslim, and now he's been stabbed in the leg with the sword, and he's screaming, he's like, what are you doing? The other guy's like, what are y'all doing, right? So finally, someway, somehow, Muhammad bin Maslamah regains kind of some control of the situation, and plunges his sword into Ka'ab al-Ashraf, and finally the whole ordeal is over. Like if you saw this play out, you could tell that these are not trained killers. Right? They were trying to avoid a war that eventually did happen, right? And took the lives of 70 Sahaba. That's what they were trying to avoid, right? Because this man single handedly was making that war happen. And so this is how they killed Ka'b bin al-Ashraf. They say some way, somehow, we make it back to the Prophet Wasallam carrying the one guy who's been stabbed in the leg, we come back to the Prophet Wasallam. The Prophet sees us covered in blood. One guy's bleeding out of his leg, right? We're all like nervous and freaked out. Like all of us are pale. And he's like, "Is everything okay?" He says, "Everything's all right. Deed is done, ya Rasulullah." He says, "Okay, Alhamdulillah." And then the Prophet then, of course, makes du'a. He applies his saliva to the wound of Al Harith ibn Al Aus. Right, as the Mu'ajizah of the Messenger Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, the miraculous act, how he could heal people like that. Um, and so that basically is the incident of Ka'b ibn al Ashraf. And that basically did put there were some other instigators. We talked about Banu Kainuqa, there were also some instigators of war amongst Banu Nadid, that basically put everyone else on notice. So it did accomplish the purpose in the sense of anyone else that was trying to instigate war, immediately got quiet, immediately stopped and said, you know what, we better stop. Because these people will basically take whatever measures they have to in order to be able to protect the sanctity of their homes, the sanctity of their community, the sanctity of their lives. Alright, so this was the incident of Qab ibn al-Ashraf. And so I ended up talking about it in the middle, but... This is exactly what I wanted to comment at the very end: is that the rhetoric surrounding the incident of Ka'b ibn al-Ashraf, Qatru Ka'b ibn al-Ashraf, the assassination or the killing of Ka'b ibn al-Ashraf is something that, you know, by both opposite camps, by both extreme camps, is portrayed in a very, um, you know, false light, is very falsely portrayed, right? Where both sides want to presented as these were Muslims assassinating anybody who would dare say anything that they did not approve of. When that was the farthest thing from the truth, Qabr al had declared war, had instigated war, had single-handedly raised an army in Mecca to attack the Muslims, which became the Battle of Uhud. Right? And on top of that, even in the incident you are able to see that the sahaba radiallahu ta'ala killing was the thing that they were not good at. Right, they could worship. They were worshipers. They were people who were devout. They were people who were dedicated. They were people who were, you know, um, committed. People who were pious and righteous. Good family people. Farmers, hard working, salt of the earth. Right, people who got their hands dirty with their own work. That's who they were. Right, they weren't trained killers and, and assassins. And you're able to see this from this particular incident. So when you go back to the original source texts, such as Ibn Ishaq, Waqidi, Tabari, Ibn Kathir, and you go back to these source texts, you're able to find the truth of the matter and the exact reality behind the killing of Ka'ban ul-Ashraf. And that I believe was, I'm not sure if I mentioned the date. Um, it was of course during the third year of the Prophet ﷺ's residence in the city of Medina. And... I do not have the date in front of me, but obviously it was after Jumadil al-Ula, but prior um, to Shawwal. So somewhere in between there, either during the month of Rajab or Sha'ban, was when Ka'b ibn al-Ashraf was killed, was assassinated. Um, and that still was not enough uh, in order to be able to prevent the Battle of Uhud. So inshallah, in the coming session, we will start talking about the Battle of Uhud and the, uh, the the days leading up to the battle and then the battle itself inshallah. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give us all the ability and the tawfiq to practice everything that was said and heard. Subhanallah wa bihamdihi Subhanakallah wa bihamdik Nashad la ilaha illa anta Nastaqfiruku wa natubu